0: Wow, I feel like I've been caught up in the heavenlies today. Oh, happy day. Amen? Amen. Uh, We're in the middle of Advent season, and uh, this Sunday and on Christmas Eve, I'll be preaching on the gifts of the Messiah, the gifts that the Messiah brings us at Christmas. And these are specifically, we're going to talk about the gifts of hope, joy, peace, and love hope, joy, peace, and love. As countless Christians before us have done, each week we're lighting a candle of the Advent wreath, and that represents these amazing gifts. As the candle burns, so does it kind of inflame our faith about these holy gifts that our Lord, in his kindness, in his mercy, brings to us. So today in part one, we're going to consider what it means to light the candles for hope and for joy. To light the candles for hope and for joy. Uh, Every time I get to the Advent season, I feel a little bit like a marathon runner must feel at the starting line. Now, to be clear, I was never a marathon runner, and my running days of any kind are uh, behind me. Um, But I think at the beginning of every Advent season, I feel like there's a long way to go in a short time. It's a lot compressed in there, and it could be a grueling race, since it certainly has been in previous years. Uh, But at the starting line, I tell myself that this year it's going to be different. It's going to be a little bit better, a little more relaxed. I want to try to ensure that my family and our church have a wonderful Christmas season. But the prophet Isaiah Uh, interrupts all of this well-intentioned resolve. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 40 in just a minute. But he claims that our hope comes not from what we accomplish, but from the Christmas surprises and gifts that God brings to us. The things we want the most, if we can really stop and be honest about it, we want hope, we want joy, we want peace. We want love. And these things can only be received. We can't produce them. They can only be received as gifts from the Messiah at his coming. So Isaiah uh, offered his prophecy to the Hebrews who long ago had been taken captive in Babylon. Now many Bible scholars believe, just to give you some context, that the first 39 chapters of Isaiah may have been written in Judah before the destruction of Jerusalem. And then the rest of the book, which is where our text today is found, um, was written uh, after the Hebrews were held as captives in Babylon, after the fall of Jerusalem. But the Babylonian captivity, um, it was a little bit different. The Babylonian captives were, were not cast into the same kind of slavery as the Hebrews had been. Centuries earlier, uh, when they were in Egypt. In Babylon, things were a bit different. Yes, they were captives, uh, but they were free in many ways. Free to conduct normal lives uh, right alongside everyone else. Life, in, in many ways, was not particularly hard for the Hebrews in Babylon. They were able, for example, to hold jobs, buy property, raise their families in peace, and were free to worship as they wanted. Still, it was always clear that they were exiles. They were always exiles from their homeland. So their problem with life in Babylon was not that it was you know, absolutely miserable. That wasn't the problem. The problem with life in Babylon was that it was just vaguely dissatisfying all the time. Because the Hebrews were not in the right place. And so they had lost their hopes. They had lost their dreams. They were a people living in a land not their own. And they were living without hope. So, let's read Isaiah 40, beginning with the first verse. Follow along as I read. This is the word of God. Comfort, comfort my people says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Hope. We know about the loss of hope. We we know about vaguely dissatisfying lives. Uh, We tell ourselves when we feel that way that this vaguely dissatisfying life is It's good enough, we have a place to live, food to eat, people to love, we're not worried about foreign troops invading our homes, we're relatively comfortable. Uh, But this is not the life we used to dream about, is it? It's not a life filled with passions and holy mission. Our days are not characterized by epic adventure or causes that are burning in our bones burning in our hearts. And some of us would have to say that we're not living lives that are abounding in hope. And so we've learned we've learned how to settle. We've learned how to settle for good enough. We keep telling ourselves this is the mark of maturity, compromising on the dreams and settling for good enough. Long before St. Augustine became a saint, While he was still searching for faith, he was on his way one day to deliver a lecture that would flatter the emperor. And he knew the lecture he had written was full of lies. He also knew that the people who would hear the lecture would applaud, even though they also knew it was full of lies. But that was what Augustine was after. That's what he wanted, the applause. That was good enough. Augustine hated himself for living for the applause, but it gave him some comfort even when the the applause was empty. Along his way that day to give his lecture, uh, he encountered a beggar. And uh, that beggar, by the side of the road, he was just as happy as he could be. He was laughing and joking with all the people who passed by him. Happiness was what Augustine was searching for in life. But he realized that if he were given the opportunity to change places with that happy beggar, he would not do it because he had become too addicted to his comfortable despair. That's what Babylon does to you. It addicts you to the notion of of good enough, so Isaiah breaks into our comfortable despair in our Babylonian type captivity, by telling us to recover some old dreams. He reminds us of some things. He interrupts our, all of our wonderful coping skills by daring us, daring us to hope again. This is a passage that dares us to hope. To be clear, biblical hope is not a matter of desiring something more in the lives we have created for ourselves. It really has nothing to do with creating a nice holiday through an incredible amount of work that will distract us perhaps from the worries of the rest of the year. Biblical hope is so different. Biblical hope comes only as an interruption from God. God intervenes. God interrupts. That's what biblical hope is. It's an interruption from God in your life. So, angels show up at Christmas telling us there is more to life than we had imagined. Old people like Zechariah and Elizabeth discover that, surprise, they're going to have a son. Mary and Joseph find that the life they had settled for, they were aiming for, was really not good enough after all, because God was about to conceive salvation in their family. Shepherds see the most amazing sights in the skies over Bethlehem. And it all reminded them of the time that Isaiah interrupted the Hebrews in Babylon, in their comfortable despair, their vaguely dissatisfying lives, and told them, that it was time to come home. It was time to come home to Jerusalem, which is where they belonged. Christmas, with all its carols and messages, is really an invitation to return life to the right place. The place it is supposed to be. It doesn't really matter how well you've done in Babylon. If your life is not abounding with hope, joy, peace, love, then you're still not in the right place. Most of us know this, if we can be honest with ourselves. And that's why we spend most of the year doing what we can to get to the right place, whatever that means for each of us. We work harder thinking that the right place is a better job, a promotion, graduation, or children who have turned out well. In our relationships, We try to make compromises, listen more carefully, struggle to be what others want us to be, all in the hopes of getting our relationships to the right place. With our health, we just keep searching for the right doctor, the right diet, the right exercise program. But look, as long as we drive the effort, we find that all we are actually doing is decorating our homes in Babylon. And Babylon is not our home. The only way to get to Jerusalem is if God makes the way straight. We all have a lot of things in our lives that have to be cleared out. And so this is a passage that talks about a highway. Listen to the words of the prophet again. He says, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Now, that sounds like a lot of work, but I want you to keep in mind, this is not your job description. This is a promise of what God must do, what God can do, and what God will do. This is a promise from God you can count on. Every mountain and hill made low. God's going to level some things in our lives. He's going to fill in some things that are lacking. And then it says, and only then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together. In other words, it is God who builds the highway to the right place. And he builds it not so that we can get to the life of our dreams, but so God can get to us. God had to do that to get to us. We would never get to him on our own. And so that was always his dream. And now we have a Savior who is with us, which means anything can happen. With God, all things are possible. God has come. He's, he's built a highway in the wilderness for his son to come and arrive and, and, and reach our hearts and our lives. And and that's really what we celebrate this season. So when the Bible talks about hope, especially at Christmas time, it is referring to the discovery that God is not done with you. God is not done with you. God is not done with your life. God has his own dreams for your life. And these dreams are not goals for you to achieve. God will build the highway that will allow them to find you. So what do we do? Well, that is why we celebrate Advent, which is the season in which we do the hard work of waiting upon God. That's what Advent means. That's what it's all about. It's about waiting. Waiting for the coming one. And down through the ages, the people of God have all cried out to this day, How long, O Lord? Have you cried that out in your heart? You have. You you, you see the brokenness within you. You see the brokenness in those you love. You see the brokenness in our church, in our city, in our country, in our world. and, And you cry out, How long, O Lord? How long? If you're like me, you're not a big fan of waiting. Anybody here like to wait? I hate to wait. I want things now, if not sooner. And just because we get a lot of practice at it does not mean that we're any good at it. That's what I've discovered in my life. You know, we wait in a lot of places, and we never like it. We wait in all kinds of lines. We wait in the cashier line. We wait the bank, we wait in traffic jams, we wait for the doctor to call us with the test results, we, we wait to hear if we are accepted, promoted, or, or asked out on a date. And it all leaves us a bit cranky, doesn't it? Because it kind of seems like wasted time. I've got better things to do than to wait. To wait upon God, however, is the soul's way taking a stand for hope, for the soul to put its hope in the Lord. You know, and there as we wait, as we hope in the Lord, we we get to watch, and, and we can watch for this, what is really a very thin veneer between heaven and earth to break wide open as the glory of God is revealed as promised. And that is not wasted time, is it? That's never wasted time. But it is a lot of work. It's hard work to wait. The hardest work that you will do this week is not to get ready for a holiday. It's to prepare for a holy one, (laughs) a holy day, a holy God. And this is why we celebrate Advent in our worship services this month, December every year. I think it's also the best understanding of why we decorate our homes, host parties, travel, buy presents for those we love. These are all rituals that invite us to keep our eyes wide open for what God is going to do as we wait upon him. There's always a few Advent surprises to come our way. And through the liturgies and the rituals of Advent, maybe you learn to watch and wait for the highway of the Lord to come to you, to reach you right where you are. And when it does, you find you're ready to receive it because you've been waiting. You haven't just been rushing around like a chicken with your head cut off. And I think that's the great importance of rituals, worship. They train our eyes to see the glory of God when when it is revealed. Many times we miss the glory of God because we're just focused on other things. Advent says stop, wait, hope. God is building a highway to reach your heart. When our boys were little, they're not little anymore, they're all grown and gone, but when they were little, our family, like many families, had its Advent rituals. We would get an Advent calendar with you know, little windows on it, and you, there'd be a window to open every day, and one of the kids would open up the window, and there'd be a little Bible verse in there, and we'd all read the Bible verse together. Uh, we also had this, and we still do, uh, a tiny, it's about a foot tall Christmas tree, and that uh, sits on a base, and you wind it up, and it rotates, it turns on its base while it's playing a Christmas song. And we would put that on the dining room table at the beginning of Advent. And it had these tiny little drawers, each with a tiny gift inside that needed to be hung on the tiny branches of the tiny tree. Let me tell you, our, our four boys loved to do that part. You know, could I pull out the little drawer, take out the... It was great. My job, my job in the whole thing is was to install a fresh battery each year so the tiny lights on the tiny tree would blink. <laughs> so, you know, not very much not very complicated, doesn't seem like much at all. But you know what? In all of this, there was a big holy mystery that was being revealed to us in those tiny little rituals. We were learning the rhythm of getting ready for the hope that that only a coming Savior could bring to us. A lot of anticipation and hope for what Jesus would do. But there's more. The Messiah brings not only hope when he comes. He brings joy. He brings joy. Let's read um, the rest of our text in Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 11. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Cry out, the Lord says. Cry out. The prophet Isaiah responds by essentially saying, why? What's the point? What's the youth. What is there to say? All people are like grass; they're not very faithful. It's like the flower of the field. The grass withers; the flowers fall. And there it is again—that vague dissatisfaction. I think Isaiah forces us to look about, to, to, to look about, and to think about what things will look like after Christmas. The rest of the year, we get back to life. As we live it day in and day out, the visiting family members will have returned home. The gifts will have been returned to the store. The reindeer sweaters will be back in the drawer, please, please. (laughs) And that beautiful Christmas tree that you, boy, you looked at every tree on the lot. And you picked the perfect one. You've just kicked it to the curb. That's where it's going to go. See, Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fall. Children are going to open up their last presents on Christmas morning and say, rats, 364 more days till we do this again, right? Adults will clean up the house, take down all those decorations that took so long to put up. Sigh. And slide back into the normal routines of life in Babylon. And another Christmas holiday will have faded away. To our surprise, the Lord actually agrees with Isaiah. Yes, the grass withers and the flower falls, but he interjects with hope the word of our God endures forever. There is something that endures forever. And because that's true, what happens in us? Well, he says... Go up on a high mountain, you who bring good news to Zion, you who bring good news to Jerusalem. Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Here is your God. I want you to notice something here. Isaiah does not call the Hebrews exiles. Even though they're still in Babylon. He doesn't treat them or talk to them as if they're exiles. He he says they are heralds. They are messengers to their own people. And their real name is not exile. Their real names are Zion, Jerusalem, Judah. These wonderful God-given names. And and this is also why we celebrate Christmas. It helps us remember who we really are and what we are really called to be in Jesus Christ, right where we are. But we don't wait to be a better people in a better place. We are God's people by the grace of God in Christ. We are God's people right now. And so we are bearers right now. We are the bearers of of good news and glad tidings of this Savior who has come, that we say to one another, we say to ourselves, we say, To the world, here is your God. Here is your God. Wow. Christmas Christmas is a time when we remember that we are not just students, business people, workers, homemakers, whatever it is. If you allow any job to define you, you will eventually be exiled from joy. Because it will grind you down and you will forget who you really are in Jesus Christ. Christmas is when we gather in our homes, in the church, to remember that we are followers of Christ who believe that the word of our God will stand forever. And he has spoken through Christ into our lives a word of forgiveness, of mercy, of love, which never fails. The word of our God will endure forever. So we believe that this word became flesh and was incarnated to us, God in the flesh, in Jesus Christ. And we believe that this means Jesus Christ stands with us, among us, for us, forever and ever. And that will never change. That will never fall. That will never fade away. I don't know who has a harder time with Christmas. Those who expect it to be awful, or those who expect it to be wonderful. In either case, it's the expectations that create the problem, isn't it? But I I just want to remind you that Christmas is just the herald. Christmas is just the herald of good tidings. Don't get so preoccupied with what the herald is or isn't that you miss the proclamation. And the proclamation is, here is your God standing right beside you, right with you, always and forever, Jesus Christ. Here is your God. So you know what this means. This means in the great days, in the horrible days, in the ordinary days, that is our source of joy. Here is our God. He has come to be with us. So at Christmas, we who call ourselves Christians, who confess faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and the Lord of our lives, we, we hear again the incredible tidings that the Messiah has come to stand with us. He didn't come to be far away. He came to be right there with us, right where we are. He knows exactly what's going on in each of our lives and homes. And this is how we find this joy. When we get clobbered, and you can't live very long in a fallen, broken world without getting clobbered. So when we get clobbered, this joy is powerful enough to get us back on our feet again. Here is our God. That's because the word of the Lord will stand forever. Jesus Christ is not going to get clobbered. I get clobbered. You get clobbered. But the word of God, the eternal word made flesh, he stands forever. So Isaiah continues as he wraps it up here in our text today. He says, see, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. Verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Now those are two strikingly different claims, aren't they? One is powerful. You know, God comes with a mighty arm. The other is gentle. He gathers the lambs in those mighty arms. Isn't that an amazing picture? But this is why we have joy. If God were not powerful, there would be no salvation for us. He would not be able to save us, and we would be without hope. But if he were not gentle, the only word from God would be judgment upon our sin, which we so richly deserve and we would be without joy. But God's word is all about hope and joy and peace and love, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, that comes to us on a great highway, and his name is Jesus Christ. So when this eternal word was about to become flesh, do you remember what the angel told Mary? He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I love that word will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. What a moment that was. That Mary would give birth to a son who would be not only the Son of Man, but the Son of God. And I think we all experience this incarnation of the Word that stands with us in much the same way that Mary did. In other words, the almighty power of the gentle God. I want you to think about that. The almighty power of the gentle God overshadowed her, overshadows us. The almighty power of the gentle God. It overshadows our anxieties, our sins, our fears, our plans, our boredom. It overshadows us and then it envelops us with joy. A joy that is not born in us, it comes from the heart of God. And so suddenly we have the joy of the Lord and we discover that it is the joy of the Lord which can be our strength each day, one day after another. So that means that joy comes not from a quest or from getting what you want. You do not find joy. Actually, joy finds you, because God must find you. Just as it found Mary, just as you cannot really, you know, analyze it. Have you ever tried to analyze joy? Have you ever tried to break it down and explain it? You can't really do it very well. You just enter it. And in that way, joy is very similar to love. You cannot sufficiently explain why you love the people you do, right? You just, you love them. You were powerfully overshadowed and enveloped in love, and it changed everything. So does joy overshadow us, it overcomes us, it overwhelms us, and most often uh, it takes us by surprise. We discover in ordinary ways that. The grace of God has broken through again. You probably had experiences of that this week. Much to your surprise, the grace of God broke through in something, and suddenly there was a joy in your life that hadn't been there before. The Son of God is standing with us at that point, and we enter his joy. This is why the angels surprised the shepherds by saying, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. All the people. All the people means all the people. It includes you. It includes you. It includes me. It includes all of us. The whole world, all of life, has now become an opportunity to be surprised by more of this amazing gift from the Messiah that's called joy. And you just have to receive it. It comes with the forgiveness of your sins. It comes with receiving the mercy of God. There's a joy that that comes with that. That you're receiving something that you know you could never earn, you could never produce. But God has freely given it to you in this Jesus Christ. Here is your God. We need to be honest about this. This is a hard thing for us to grasp. Because... Largely in our culture, we have been trained to think in terms of plans, strategies, goals, and what it takes to get to the place where we think we should be. And that is a place where we will find joy. We just know it, right? Well, that may help us find happiness for a while, but not joy. And the problem with happiness is it's exactly what Isaiah is trying to tell us, that the grass always withers and the flower always fades. But joy, joy comes from God. Joy finds us as God's gift at all times. And God likes to keep his gifts wrapped so that they surprise us. We can't exactly see them coming. We can't exactly tell what they are. But he knows exactly what he wants to give us at the right time according to the need. It's a beautiful picture of his power and his gentleness that overshadows our lives. Let me end with this. There's a there's a beautifully written book by Ron Hansen titled Mariette in Ecstasy. Mariette in Ecstasy. And it tells the story of a young woman named Mariette who joined a convent and becoming a nun was the goal of her life from the time she was a little girl because she so much wanted to honor God with her life. So she was convinced that meant settling into the sacrifices and the devout regimens of a convent. So she did that, but things uh, immediately began to go badly for her as a nun. Here's what happened. She fell deeply in love with Jesus Christ. She wasn't planning on that. She fell deeply in love with Jesus Christ. And so she began to pray differently from the other nuns. She was focused on the one to whom she was praying. And her love for Jesus, it's just too great to be contained by the plans and the routines of the monastery. So she gets kicked out of the convent. She gets kicked out of the convent. And it's all because of her excesses in piety. They didn't really know what to do with her. So they kicked her out. To her horror, she is thrust out into an unregimented world but this is not what she wanted. Thirty years later... Mariette writes a letter to the convent that describes how her horror of, of leaving the set routines of the convent, she found her life and her security in that. Well, actually it became her delight after she was kicked out of the convent. And she wrote to say, now she knows that joy can be found anywhere. The last line of her letter is the last line of the book, and it reads like this. We try to be formed and held and kept by Christ. But he offers us freedom. Now when I try to know his will, his kindness floods me. His love overwhelms me. And I hear him whisper, surprise me. The point of that is God delights in surprises. He surprised those captives in Babylon. He surprises captives in modern Babylon today. And so my prayer for you is that the gifts of hope, the gifts of joy from Jesus, our Messiah, will find you and surprise you in some way this week. And I hope to see you on Christmas Eve. We'll, we'll do part two of this and uh, we'll talk about the rest of the gifts that he brings to us, which are peace and love. And I could use a bit more of those. Could you? Amen.